You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Social Emotional Learning and the Brain by Marilee Springer. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. Today, we're going to kick the show off by pronouncing some words that are known to be controversial. (laughs) So we're going to see, I'm not, I'm actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure if we're going to have a lot of differences because we're from the same region in the U.S., but you never know. I've had some arguments about some of these words with (laughs) friends, so we'll see how Laura and I compare. All right. Okay, Laura, I'm going to have you say the first word, and I'm not going to say it. Blind test. The first word is ant. Ant. Same. But we all know the people who pronounce this aunt. They're very fancy. Very fancy. (laughs) Some would say pretentious. (laughs) Aunt. I don't know. All right. Let me hear you say the second one, because I am really set on how I say this. Okay. And this is one I have had arguments with people about. Okay. Caramel. Caramel. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) But I know people who are diehard caramel people. (laughs) Oh, caramel. Yes, it's caramel. Can't you see all the letters in it? It is. It is caramel. (laughs) I still say Of course. (laughs) Yeah. This is one that even though I know I say it wrong, I have to just stick to my guns because it's caramel. I love eating caramel. Caramel apple. Nobody says caramel apple. Why would you add another syllable if you don't have to? (laughs) Work smarter, not harder. Exactly. Ooh, the third one we might say differently. Root. Route. Different. Sometimes I find myself getting a little peer pressure on that word. Like I'll hear someone say root and then I change it to root. But root is a word. It's the base of a tree, roots. And so since there's a different pronunciation route, why don't we just say it that way to avoid confusion? You know, that's a good point. And looking at that, I'm also like if I read a boy got his first paper, I think I would say route. So maybe... It is one where you can switch back and forth sometimes. Yeah. We don't have to commit hard to any of these. No, no. <laughs> and also, everybody listening, if you want to chime in, go ahead. Tag us on your stories <laughs> on Instagram. Tell us. If you have a really strong opinion, sway us and convince us otherwise. <laughs> okay. How do you say number five? Um, see, now that you're asking me, I feel pressure. <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to be organic. Data. Data. I say data. And we went to grad school together where this came up a lot. I know. Okay. So number six is one that I feel like I have a bone to pick with the publishers of the Goldman Fristo because I have never had a student, never had a student say this in the way that they want them to. Uh Uh-huh. Pajamas. Pajamas. You say pajamas? I say pajamas. You do? Yes. (laughs) Wait, should I say aunt? I don't know. You're (laughs) sounding very fancy. I thought that was more of like an older fashion thing. Pajamas. Pajamas. Wow. My students all either just said PJs or they said pyjamas. All of them. So it's not a good word for a lot of regions of the United States to put on an articulation test. Sure. So let's wrap it up there for how we pronounce these words. We have more on the list, so we might try again in the future. Yeah. I'm surprised we do have quite a few we say differently, and we're from the same general area. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with this week's chapter. 
Do you love free stuff? This month, we'll be giving away a $100 Amazon gift card, plus a copy of next month's book, Take Time for You, Self-Care Action Plans for Educators by Dr. Tina Bogren. Trust us, you guys. We're a new podcast, and your odds of winning this thing are pretty high. Please help us out and just think of all the amazing things you can get from Amazon. Maybe some self-care things if you want to stick with May's book thing. Some bubble bath? More books? Wine? Did you know you can get wine from Amazon? Listen, we're not here to judge. Here's how to enter. If you love the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Then take a screenshot of your review and email it to hello at the slpbookclub.com. If you want extra entries in the drawing, post about an episode you loved on your Instagram stories with a link to the show and make sure to tag at SLP underscore book club. Please don't mention that it's part of a giveaway and only post if you really do love the show. If you have any questions about how to enter, email us at hello at the slpbookclub.com. We've also included all this information in the show notes if you're more of a visual learner. We'll be accepting entries until April 20th. Then we'll draw a winner. Good Good luck. luck! Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the SLP Book Club. We're going to continue on our journey with social emotional learning in the brain by Marilee Springer. And today we're going to be covering chapter two, which is all about empathy. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Are you excited about this chapter? I love this book. I love anytime I can learn more about teaching kids empathy. Love it. Yeah, such an important skill. I agree. So chapter two opens up with a story about a student named Elsie who came into the classroom complaining that everybody was making fun of her for wanting to join the cheerleading team. So they were like, oh, you're not cool enough. Your hair's not cool. She was feeling really sad about it. So instead of offering suggestions like, well, maybe you could wear your hair down like you did last year, which shows that you're agreeing with the people who are making fun of her, you should... Dig within yourself and try to remember what it felt like to be an insecure seventh grader. Like we all want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) But once you do that and you're like, oh, yeah, it was a really hard time, actually. It should be easier for you to think of a helpful comment, maybe something along the lines of, I'm sorry, I know this hurts. So how can students become empathetic if it isn't modeled at home? There's a program called Roots of Empathy started by Mary Gordon, and you can feel free to check out their books if you want to learn more about that. But they brought a baby into a classroom once a month and had the students observe, encourage, and discuss what the baby was feeling. So they watched the baby grow and change and predicted how the baby was feeling based on their observations of body language, facial expression, and actions that the baby took. So some reasons that students might not show empathy are that they are more affluent, which I was kind of surprised about this. It felt like this is something that I might have assumed, but that I didn't really know was proven or had been documented. So they said that some research suggests that our higher socioeconomic students lack empathy more so than their lower SES peers And of course, this depends on how much empathy was shown by their caregivers. But, you know, it's something to think of. And some students also can't show empathy because they're so unaccustomed to dire circumstances that they would rather just avoid the situation. So this could look like maybe a student has lost a parent and instead of addressing it head on, their friend just kind of avoids them because they don't even know how to deal with that kind of situation. 
Empathy can be broken down into three types, cognitive empathy, emotional empathy, and compassionate empathy. So this suggests a spectrum of seeing, feeling, and caring for others. Cognitive empathy is also known as perspective taking. So it's the ability to understand how a person feels and what they may be thinking. Listening is pretty key here, and in order to understand what the person is saying, communication must be clear. Emotional empathy is the ability to actually share the feelings of another person, and this can help us to build emotional connections. And then compassionate empathy, aka empathic concern, is when we move beyond understanding and sharing to action. So this is where we try to actually help. So for example, if one of your students is sad and you hear that they had to put their dog down, you can sympathize by telling them you are so sorry. But to take it further into actual empathy, you need to first imagine what the student is experiencing, which is cognitive empathy. Then you move into emotional empathy by trying to connect the student's experience to your own. And finally, compassionate empathy makes you take action. So you might spend some extra time with the student and see if he wants to talk or maybe give him some space to be alone. When we feel empathy for strangers, it is most likely because of some common thread. So the example that they gave was 9-11, where, you know, pretty much the whole country was watching on TV and feeling this deep empathy for the victims and first responders. You didn't even have to know those people and they were strangers, but you still felt for them and felt probably a little bit of what it felt like to be in that situation. And this really has to do with our mirror neurons that allow us to project ourselves onto somebody else's tragic situation and feel their pain. So again, mirror neurons popping up. <laughs> we know those. Where did we hear about them? The loving push? No, uh, the whole brain child. The whole brain child. So modeling may be the number one most important strategy for teaching empathy. Students watch their teachers, especially during interactions with another student. If a student did something right, the students want to see how you treat that student. And if a student did something wrong, they want to see how you look at and speak to that student and how you respond to the situation as a whole. So students are curious to see how you'll treat them if they're in a similar situation. And when you try to understand your students and make them feel safe and loved, they may be willing to share their feelings more readily. There's an example in the book of a sixth grader named Angel who always came to school late and really never had his homework finished. And it turns out that Angel's from a culture where women are revered and his father was never really in the home. So anything his mom or sisters wanted or needed cleaned up really fell on Angel's shoulders and took precedence over what he had to do. So his teachers kind of asked some probing questions one day and basically figured out that he was late because he was cleaning up after breakfast every morning. And he actually said he had to run to school. So the teachers scheduled a home visit and they went and they talked to his mom and his sisters and helped them to understand that Angel really needed to do his schoolwork if he was going to have a better life for himself. And they came up with a plan that his sisters and Angel would take turns making breakfast and cleaning up so that Angel would be able to finish his homework and get to school on time. And this plan worked, which is great news. And when Angel had issues with schoolwork or personal situations, he knew he had two teachers that he could always count on for support. And the other students at the school also saw that they would be treated with compassion if they were in a tough situation. And then they began to trust the teachers more. Once again, this is just kind of a fine line to walk. You know, when two teachers from the school are coming to the home and, you know, this is a, like a cultural issue with Angel's family. 
and it seemed to me like they were overstepping a little bit, but I guess they explained to the mom that his academics were being impacted. I don't know. Yeah. I just, <laughs> when I hear these stories, sometimes I cringe, like, are you crossing the line when you go into their home and you try to impose these new rules kind of on how they run their house in the morning? Yeah, it's hard, especially coming from different cultures. And I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, even a home visit, that's like, I've never even really heard of a teacher going to a house unless maybe it was like to deliver homework and they knew the parent or something. But to go with a concern I don't know. I mean, it seemed to have fixed the problem and that's good for Angel. It sounds like Marilee had a lot of experience with teaching in more at-risk schools or with more at-risk populations. So maybe you got to do what you got to do. But Laura, I know that you also have experience with that. So yeah, I mean, you know, I'm the speech therapist. I wasn't making home visits, but my school psychologists were pretty often. So, mm. you know, I heard some stories of home visits and usually an administrator and a psychologist going out of concern because things weren't, you know, the student either wasn't doing well and then there was no communication with home. But I don't know. I mean, it sounds like this story turned out fine. For some reason, I just was like, <laughs> I just don't know if I would feel comfortable approaching it that way. Right. We always want to be like culturally sensitive, of course. Yeah. But the point of the story was that they were concerned for the student and they were modeling for the other students and for him that they cared a lot about him and wanted to make sure that he could succeed. And so they were willing to do whatever they could to help. Absolutely. Well, you can seek to understand by attempting to see something from another's point of view or perspective. So just think about asking the right questions such as, can you help me understand how you see this? And it's also a good idea to remember to ask and not tell when it comes to children and their feelings. So instead of saying, oh, you must be so sad about whatever, you could say, I imagine you feel, you know, happy. Am I right? Or could you tell me how you feel? Which gives them more opportunity to share with you instead of you kind of putting the words in their mouth. You could also focus on appreciation days such as teacher appreciation day or custodian appreciation day. They had the idea of setting up an appreciation table with post-it notes, pens, and envelopes, as well as a list of the custodian's names so that students can write a little note to each custodian, spell their name right, and then it would be delivered to the right person. And you could consider something also like a kindness wall where you attach post-it notes and a pen and ask a question like, what kind act did you see or do today? And then students are asked to pay it forward if they receive a kind act, which encourages more kindness. And face-to-face -face conversations are also really important. So one study showed that having a face-to-face -face conversation is the best way to build empathy. This allows better interpretation of nonverbal communication as well as context. So you can encourage face-to-face -face conversation by telling students to look at the color of the speaker's eyes, and this will make it easier to focus on visual cues and facial expressions. You can try to do a fun staring contest to get students comfortable with looking someone straight in the eyes. And you can also tell students everything gets to be put on pause when they're having a one-to-one -one conversation. You can get students involved in community projects such as conducting food drives, visiting nursing homes to engage with senior citizens who may appreciate having someone to talk to, helping after disasters, or assisting with city beautification by picking up litter. 
You can also encourage volunteer work, which may include helping in the school library or cafeteria, as well as outside establishments. And I thought this was a cute idea. I don't know how it would really work in a speech room. Laura, maybe you know. You can establish a classroom pet. So the author talks about a classroom hamster that she had named Homie. (laughs) And Homie was the pet when she taught a seventh grade class in an inner city school. She noticed how his presence made a difference in the lives of so many of those tough students who were otherwise rarely showing emotion, compassion, or empathy. Students would hold the hamster and stroke him, and she was surprised by the students who would volunteer to care for him. And they would also use Homie to comfort other students by suggesting like, oh, you know, Megan's kind of sad today. Maybe she should hold Homie and that will help her to feel better. So I thought that was such a cute idea. And then they said school therapy dogs can also bring about more empathy, to which I say, school therapy dog, tell me more about that. <laughs> I want a school therapy oh, dog. If only. <laughs> I know. Well, Adrian, when you were a kid, did you have class pets in your classrooms in elementary school? Yeah, vaguely, I remember. And I also remember one of the pets, it might have been a guinea pig. It got to go home with every student each weekend. Somebody got to take it home. Yeah. Oh, I loved class pets. I was going to say at one school I worked at, it was a really small school. The OT I worked with told me that a few speech therapists before me, there was this Australian speech therapist who (laughs) got a fish and he was like, she was only here like one or two days a week. (laughs) And she she wanted a class pet for her speech room. But then she was having to like have everybody else feed it all the time. She was never there. He said it was just a mess. Oh, no. So I know. Not such a well thought out idea. Yeah. I mean, if you're a speech therapist who's at a school five days a week, you could probably get away with some type of pet if your school allows that. But (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Fish is not a bad idea. I'm thinking about some classroom pets just from my years as being an SLP. And one teacher, third grade teacher, I believe. Um, had walking sticks. Oh, that's a bug, right? Walking stick. Stick insects. Stick insects. Oh, not a walking stick. Ew. Stick insects. <laughs> because I got an email like that was sent out to the staff that was like, "Hey, does anybody want a stick insect? We got them in abundance over here. Free to take one home. They're great pets." <laughs> and then she went on to list all of the attributes that made them such a great pet, <laughs> try to convince everyone. No, thank you. I could list a million reasons why I don't yeah. want a stick walking around my house. <laughs> I guess it was good for like their science yeah. projects they were doing in the class or whatever. But I was just briefly considered having the stick insect as a pet. And then I just, oh my gosh, I don't know. Well, One time I walked out on my patio and there was a praying mantis on my, on my patio furniture and we named him Gregory the green bug and he had come to our patio to pass away. (laughs) I guess their lifespan is very short, but I did start to feel this, this attachment to him. I just loved looking at him, rubbing his little praying hands together (laughs) or her. I, it was probably a female. I don't know. So you do get attached to these really disgusting insects. Well, that's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) The authors also suggest a mix it up at lunch day. This is where you designate a day for children to sit with somebody they don't know while they're eating lunch. So you can help facilitate this by decorating the cafeteria or making posters advertising it 
or placing conversation starters on the tables. This is my nightmare. As a student? Yes. Oh. I would have hated this, having to sit with people I didn't know. I told you, I was, I was so shy when I was a kid. So I would have really been upset if my teachers made me do this. Yeah, I've never seen this in action, but I thought it was like kind of a fun idea, probably better for extroverts. Mm -hmm. Another way to build empathy is through literature. So students find it easy to empathize with characters and books and stories. Literature can figuratively cause students to walk in someone else's shoes. You could try to read simple stories like The Three Little Pigs and ask students to change their points of view and look at the story from the wolf's perspective. And then something that might help in a classroom environment is called epiphany in a paper bag. Sort of brutal. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, it could, given the right class, I'm sure it's beneficial. So <laughs> you give each student six post-it notes. Three are green and three are pink. On the green notes, every student was asked to write three things that other students had done to make them feel happy or special. Then they folded up the note and wrote the name of the student responsible on the outside of the note. They did the same thing with the pink notes, but they wrote something that happened that made them feel upset, embarrassed, or angry. Then they'd fold up those notes and write the student who made them feel that way on the outside. Then the teacher distributed the notes into a bag labeled for each student. Then each student got their bag and, you know, opened it up and read what was in there. So some students had all green notes and they're really kind and caring and some had exclusively pink notes and um, I guess we're not making such a great impression, but most kids had a mixture of both. So once they read, every student reads through, you know, the notes about their behavior, then you have a big classroom discussion to express feelings, kind of come up with solutions, to sort of talk it through. So I guess it's an anti-bullying strategy. I had to reread a couple times the part about the pink notes. I was like, wait, you're yeah. going to write this to the kid? Write a note to the kid that made you feel bad saying that they made you feel bad? Yeah. So I just go like, <laughs> Laura told me I wasn't very flexible and that made me feel bad. <laughs> Fold it up. I write Laura on the outside and then it's in your bag and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. I made someone feel sad because I told them they weren't flexible. Yeah. To get a bag full of pink notes, I guess it makes you really reflect on the way you're coming off. Yeah, I agree. It sounds pretty brutal. Yeah. Not sure if I could do this one with my kids. Yeah, same. But you know, what if you have a classroom that really needs to be like whipped into shape? Mm -hmm. You have a bunch of bullies or mean kids, maybe it would be helpful. Yeah. I like this idea better. It's another anti-bullying activity that was developed by the Ripple Kindness Project. It helps students to understand the damage that bullying can do. It's called crumpled hearts. So you give each student a red paper heart and you ask them to look at how beautiful and perfect the heart is and imagine that it's their own real heart. Then they pass the heart to the person on their right and ask them to love and care for it as they hand it over. Then next, you ask each student to say a mean thing to the heart they were just given and crumple it into a tiny little ball, throw it on the ground, and stomp on it. Then you have the student pick up the crumpled little ball, look at the student who owns the heart, and say they're sorry. Ask them to turn their attention back to the student's heart and apologize, saying they didn't mean to be so thoughtless, and have them ask the heart's owner to forgive them. While they're saying all this, have them try to smooth out the heart as much as possible and then have the students return the heart to their owners. Each person holds up their still crumpled heart because there's just no way, you know, to get it perfectly smooth and ask them how it looks. Is it still perfect? Did the person they gave it to care for it? 
explained that every time a person talks behind someone else's back, bullies, says something mean on social media, or belittles someone, they're responsible for adding a crinkle to that person's heart. Even though they may apologize later, that crinkle cannot be smoothed out. It may fade over time, but that person's heart will never really be the same, and the scars will remain for their whole life. So this is a good opportunity to talk about the responsibility that we all have to care for other people and their feelings. Yeah, I liked that one. At first, I was like, this sounds complicated again. This sounds too complicated. But then the ending really brings it all together. It reminds me of that experiment that they did with the two trees where the kids were really nice to the one tree and talked nicely to it and sang to it. And then they bullied the other tree. Have you heard this? No. Yeah, it was at a school, I think. And then they every day were supposed to just be mean to the other tree, say terrible things, bully it. And literally one tree thrived and the bullied tree like just shriveled up. It was so pathetic looking. And I feel like it taught kids. I mean, it is crazy that that can happen with trees. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what did that tree ever do? (laughs) (laughs) But just like how powerful your words are and, you know, the things you do even to a tree. (laughs) Yes. Also a little bit of a segue, but important to think about our own thoughts about ourselves. Yeah. Because if we are bullying ourselves with our internal voice, you don't want to shrivel up like that little sad tree. You want to say nice things to yourself. Or add crinkles to your heart. Oh, geez. So sad. Well, what I like about the heart is that you can really do that with kids of any age. So even if you work with little preschoolers, yeah, I think you could still simplify it and they would understand. Yeah. And it doesn't involve any writing or reading. You can just... Absolutely. And then you might want to do a self-assessment to determine how empathic you are when interacting with your students. There are three questions that we can ask ourselves if we truly want to be more empathic. The first question is, what is this person feeling? And to answer this question, you need to look up body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, ask questions maybe to discover exactly what is going on from the other person's perspective, and be sure to remain open, make eye contact, and use a soothing tone. You can also ask yourself, have I ever felt this way? So dig deep within yourself to think about a time where you might have felt the same way. And the next question is to ask, how would I want to be treated if I felt this way? So even if you haven't really had that same experience that the person is going through, imagine yourself in this situation. Treating others with kindness, respect, love, and compassion will help you build the trust they will need to provide you with more information and create a relationship that will allow you to more specifically give them what they need. So you can imagine several situations where you can apply your empathic skills. Situation number one is the first moment you make eye contact with a student. You can do some mind reading by asking questions like, how is he doing? Does she look upset? Where did he get that bruise on his face? The next situation is your interaction with students in your classroom. So this might be trying to apply empathy when students are not understanding the lesson that you spent a bunch of time on. Instead of just saying it slower and louder, try to see the lesson from the student's point of view in order to change your approach. A student-centered teacher has warmth, trust, empathy, and positive relationships. Situation number three occurs because of inappropriate behavior. So this type of situation calls for an empathic mindset. And this would be like students who are sort of behaviorally acting up. Instead of treating the behavior with a punishment, teachers with an empathic mindset treat students with empathy and compassion. 
So this gives the teachers an opportunity to understand students' perspectives and to continue positive relationships with students when they misbehave. This improves student-teacher relationships and discipline outcomes. So overall, we need to start saying the right things to our students. What we say could make or break our relationship with a student and repairing relationships takes time that could be spent in other ways. And a great way to do this is to model empathy while you interact with your students by making statements that really show empathy. So at the end of the chapter, they have a table that has some phrases. So for example, if a student says, my friends won't sit with me at lunch, instead of saying like, oh, I remember when my friends did the same thing to me, you could say, I'm sorry you're going through this. And one is sympathizing and one is being empathic. Another example, if the student says, my grandpa is dying, instead of saying that's the circle of life, uh, you could say, my heart hurts for you, or, you know, I feel for you, or any other empathic statement. This made me rethink. Sometimes I think a lot of us think we're being empathic when, like you just said, we're really just sympathizing. You know, so often when we talk to people, we're, you know, just waiting to go, oh, that reminds me of this. Or I, I that happened to me once where you're bringing everything back to you and really showing your kids empathy is putting the focus on them and saying the right things and not belittling their experience. So, you know, it gave me a lot to think about just in the way I interact with everybody this chapter. Same. And I thought they had some really great suggestions. I would say definitely SLPs. If you work a lot with your mental health counselor at your school site, maybe you could team up and do some of those like appreciation day tables or if you have a certain group of kids who would really benefit from that crumpled heart activity, that could be really good. But again, social emotional learning is a little bit of a gray area for SLPs, but I think we can really support and, you know, you can work with your school psych too, maybe. Yeah. That is it for chapter two, all about empathy. I hope you learned something new today or your wheels and your brain are really turning. You're thinking of some good activities. If you have some good ideas, reach out to us on Instagram. Let us know. Keep an eye on our Instagram as we'll probably have some more resources and ideas posted there. We will see you next time for chapter three, which is all about self-awareness. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the slp book club. 